Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where we're gearing up for Gretna Fest starting September 27th through September 29th, 2019. I'll be there on Saturday, September 28th, to see Casey and the Sunshine Band and Rick Springfield. And Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, which is joining the list of cities seeking to regulate Airbnb and short-term residential rentals. That issue is on the city board agenda for October 2nd, 2019. Tonight in episode 31, we're looking at the Chain of Rocks Bridge murders in State of Missouri versus Marlon Gray, Reginald Clemens, Antonio Richardson, and Daniel Winfrey. Gray, Robinson, and Clemens were convicted and sentenced to death for the April 5, 1991, sexual assault and murders of sisters Julie and Robin Carey. Gray was executed in 2005. Richardson's death sentence was commuted to life without parole in 2003. Winfrey, a juvenile, pled guilty and testified against his co-defendants. Clemens' conviction was overturned in 2015 And in 2017, he pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery, and was resentenced to serve five consecutive life terms. We'll look at the evidence against the four, the new evidence claims advanced in post-conviction litigation, the results of DNA testing, and the possibility, possibility that Clemens could be released on parole in 2020. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing tonight? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. A lot of material to go through, and Saturday was kind of a... a wash because I drove to uh, Spar's restaurant on Highway 90 and around DeSalmon's to meet my great nephew Jonathan and I to have that. lunch with my niece, nephew, sister, and brother-in-law. Uh, and the world is fixing to end because my other sister and I got along perfectly 
during the entire trip down and the entire trip back. Oh, Lord. That is a sign of the apocalypse. Siblings getting along. Um, I mean, we laughed and joked around so hard on the way down there, on the way back. I couldn't believe it. Because usually we right. end up within about an hour pissed off at each other. <laughs> so uh, it was very strange, but very nice. We had a nice time. And uh, Jonathan will be six months old tomorrow. He's a very smart baby. He already knows how to give kisses. No. So, um, yeah, he's very sweet, and he's so soft. <laughs> so, well, it all right. Like, uh, your Saturday went a little bit better than mine. I watched the. Uh, I got the unfortunate pleasantry of watching the Razorbacks. Uh, just completely die uh, Saturday night. So, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> that was pretty well. Um, LSU beat the crap out of Vanderbilt. Yeah, they <laughs> did. I was watching that and I was like, good Lord. But yeah, that was a pretty good game. But uh, I guess I won't, uh, things that we do have so much to get to, I guess I won't take up uh, too much here uh, with the early stuff that you know, I always got to bring something up that's not on the record. And I just sent you the uh, the uh, story. Yeah. But this is kind of an update. We uh, actually, I don't know if we ever covered boys on the track here because there's no litigation. But I know we Correct. covered it on the curtain. And uh, it looks like something is uh, going on with that. Uh, for the first time in quite a while, uh, the mom... Uh, the mom who of one of the boys who we interviewed actually on that show, right, Linda Ives. Linda Ives, yes, she uh, she filed a lawsuit to obtain some information from from three federal agencies, and I believe the judge dismissed it. Any, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it while we were waiting to go live, but uh, any particular reason? Well, it looks like um, in 2018, the DEA was uh, ordered to disclose parts of the file to satisfy Ives' requests, mm-hmm. but they did not find anything related to uh, her son, Kevin, or his friend, or the murders in those, in those files that were disclosed. Uh, it doesn't right. identify the other agencies, although I I bet one of them would be the FBI. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the problem is is that Seal was an informant, so even if they did disclose rec- all the records, they're going to be heavily redacted. And is there to any particular- protect identities of okay. other informants? Investigators, officers, personnel, FBI personnel, DEA personnel, locations, dates. It's not, I don't think it's going to be a very fruitful, uh, even if they were to produce everything. Well, and that's the crazy thing to me because, I mean, and I kind of understand it a little bit now because you uh, explained it there. 
But, like, this is the mother of a child who was murdered. Wouldn't you think they'd be a little bit more forthcoming with information? Well, no. And if I recall correctly, Barry Seal was actually murdered in 85, two years mm-hmm. before the the April 23rd, 1987 murder. Right. And he was murdered or assassinated because he had been caught and arrested and was setting, getting ready to testify. And he was murdered near my neck of the woods in Baton Rouge. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And um, he was living in a halfway house. And still trying to be big time, you know, Barry Seal uh, mm-hmm. in the halfway house when he should have been in with witness protection. Several things that I've read, he did not want to do that. Right. And so, and and it looks like, you know, the Colombian people that he was fixing to testify against or associates of those people uh, took him out and I, I like I said I think it was a year or two years before mm-hmm. I may be, I may be, may be mistaken on that one I believe you're right now I mean obviously you know we're not a show for conspiracy theories we had that show and you know did that but this is a completely different show but that's, you know, kind of part of it is for you to believe that, you know, everything that we presented on that show, you kind of have to believe in conspiracy theories. Really, there's no yeah. evidence to quote-unquote support necessarily that the Clintons were involved in everything we got into. But, I mean, if it turns out that one day we find out everything, you know, that is in that conspiracy is true, boy, that's going to be a story. Right. And, you know, I, I wish that between since, you know, I wish in the last few years that, that somebody had become sheriff who was actually interested in investigating. But all the time that's passed, I don't know whether they can really come to a solution. And if right. it was related to drug smuggling, it, it's a, a you know a matter of people that may have been operating in that area that the authorities had no idea were operating in that area. Right, right. And, and who, once they killed the boys, left and never came back. Well, I mean, the quote-unquote official story is that the boys, I believe, they said that the boys were high and they fell on the tracks or something. But or Yeah, fell they asleep fell asleep on, on the tracks. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like it's probably going to be one of those things that, you know, kind of like West Memphis, we all have our theories. One of them, you know, has been proven in a court of law. But, uh, you know, we may never get that smoking gun that, okay, this ends all the debate. This is it, you know, so on and so forth. I feel like that's probably going to be one of those situations. Correct. That uh, it's more mean, likely than not. Since 
honestly, since we started this show, I've learned that that happens more often, really, than what I even realized, how open to interpretation everything has become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I mean, some things, you know, you, you once you, what is that Sherlock Holmes statement, once you eliminate uh, the impossible... Oh, I can't remember the I can't remember the quote, but uh, and well, and it's like you know what is it? Uh, Occam's razor: the simplest answer is usually the right one. Right. In most, right. You know, most dealings, and it's funny with these conspiracy theories. You know, it requires multiple people. Let's say O.J. Simpson. It required the detectives, the crime lab, the evidence technicians, the coroners, you know, multiple people to be involved. Oh, yeah, they were all. And, you know, that was and and some things that they couldn't have done unless they could also bend time because they couldn't have planted Simpson's blood at the murder scene because at the time the murders were discovered and the evidence was collected Simpson was, Simpson in, was Chicago. in Chicago. Yeah. So, well, Lisa, one thing, um, one, another thing I want to ask you about, I actually forgot about this till just now when I was looking at the updates, but the first name, I don't know if you've been paying attention to Brad's Facebook, but the uh, first name on the list uh, a story came out today, and I don't know how, if it's from a reputable source or whatnot, but <laughs> apparently somebody in jail confessed to Avery's murder. Or yes, murder uh, there himself. has. Now let's let's put this in context first. Kathleen uh-huh. Zellner announced several couple weeks ago that a quote donor had put up a hundred thousand dollars to identify the, quote, real killer, who's not Stephen Avery or Brendan Dassey. And um, any, you know, credible lead would be richly compensated. Uh, Recently, a gentleman by the name of Joseph Evans, who is currently serving time in prison in Wisconsin and who may – who may be serving time with Avery, Mm -hmm. wrote a letter confessing to the murder of Teresa Halbach. And he includes uh, hitting her with his his truck when he was backing out, um, putting her in the back of her truck or his truck, to take her to the hospital, but then realizing she was already dead, going into Avery's house, collecting a bloody Band-Aid. And I, I only looked at the, the letter was uploaded. I only looked at it for a couple minutes and kind of read select portions. Um, I'll have mm-hmm. a, a more detailed ana- analysis next week. But Aside from a few things which can't be corroborated because we never had a complete body for Teresa, 
Right. And if the if the prosecution's claims about her manner of death are faulty or untrue because there is no evidence that proves that's how it happened, we have the right. same problem with Mr. Evans' confession because there is no proof that she was struck by a vehicle and died. Mm-hmm. Because right. we never had a body, we have no autopsy on a on a body to right. corroborate his claims. Um, the whole thing about sneaking into Avery's trailer, and as I recall, Avery was there all day mm-hmm. at the trailer. So how is he sneaking in the trailer while Avery's there without Avery ever seeing or noticing him? He right. claims the trailer was empty. As I said, I have to read. The, I haven't read the letters. I downloaded them. Um, I have to see their their images of handwritten letters. I have to see if I could even print them. Um, if right. I can't, I'm going to be very, very, very annoyed until somebody on Reddit comes up with typed transcripts. Oh, I love Reddit. So and and he has helpfully sent Kathleen Zellner a uh, a, a prison deposit ticket so that hundred thousand dollars can be put in on his books right away. No, oh, well that's just sweet of him. Yes, it is. It says he's so helpful. So we'll see <laughs> how that. Um, you know, just a little bit that I read. I don't find it to be a credible. Confession. I haven't had a chance to look into Joseph Evans' history. Um, right. He's currently in prison in Wisconsin. So uh, if I find out that he was in prison in Wisconsin on October 31st, 2005, I will be shouting it from the rooftops, posting it all over Facebook and Twitter, and I'll even start posting more on Reddit. <laughs> So, all right, well, let's go through these uh, few updates that we have. In Avery, um, Zellner filed a request with the Court of Appeals to expand the word limit for uh, Avery's brief from our 241,000 words. I think it's like 37,000 words. She wanted 41. That was denied. And the brief is now due on October 14th, 2019. Uh, my prediction is that now that she has Evans's letter, she's going to file a request to go back to the trial court and present this exculpatory evidence, this confession, from someone who isn't named Stephen Avery or Brendan Dassey, to the trial court, um, and so there will no be appeal, there will be no appeal brief filed. Um, she may request a few extensions in the meantime, um, but she will probably want to go back to the trial court a third time to pursue this folly. Right. 
Which I mean, okay, so here's part of my thing on this whole note thing. The dude's already in prison. What the hell are you going to do with $100,000 in prison? What are you going to buy from the commissary for $100,000? But with that being said, if he thought, if he thought logically and reasonably, he probably wouldn't have committed whatever crime landed him in prison. This is true. This is true. And I do want, and I'm interested to know what if the dude was in there on like drug charges or something, something he would reasonably get out for. Why in the hell he would confess to a murder? Okay, well, um, <laughs> there are some five fast facts on Joseph Evans Jr. on Heavy.com. Let's just go now that we're now that we're on this train. Let's ride it Sorry. into the crazy town station here. Um, okay. Uh, Evans was convicted of murdering his wife. Uh-huh. He previously claimed that Avery had confessed to murdering Teresa Hallback. Uh-huh. In 2016, okay. he wrote a letter that said if he would have gotten away with it, if his idiot nep- if his idiot nephew of his, Brendan, would not have spoken to police like he told him not to. So, huh. uh... So, mind you, this dude's already flip-flopping on who killed Paul because he already said that And, you know, this is... This is where the credibility of his of his uh, statement goes into the crapper. He's in prison with Avery, just like yeah, Billy done. Billy Stewart and Benny Guy were in prison with Baldwin. He mm-hmm. could have gotten information from Avery that would enable him to make a. Uh, a, a a quote credible confession to have uh you know credible details. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the detail given the the interest in the case is actually a, a pretty much available online with a quick search of the name Stephen Avery. Right. Now he was he was uh, found guilty of first degree intentional homicide and criminal damage to property in 2008 in Marinette County, County, which is where Mm -hmm. the Avery's cabin was located. Coincidinky, and he received a life prison sentence. So he was he was probably in the free world. In 2005. Right. But, uh, and, and Heavy now has a, uh, uh, it, it, Heavy has a, a transcript, essentially. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty much done with it. As soon as you told me that originally he claimed that. Uh, Avery confessed, and now he's confessing. Yeah, he did this for money. Correct. Yeah, 
and he's placing everything he did on in Avery's, Avery's garage on the Avery property. Right. Which conveniently explains why everything would be in Avery in Avery's, you know, on Avery's property because this dude used Avery's property to commit murder. Yeah, it's BS. Correct. Correct. So, um, and what what we may do um, after Thanksgiving, between Thanksgiving and and Christmas, maybe we'll we'll go into Avery again because there have been a lot, pretty pretty significant developments over the course of time right. since we last talked about it. And you know we'll we'll do it when Brad can be on, and mm-hmm. we'll we'll go through some of the things that are going on. Okay. Sounds like a plan. We'll definitely have to do that. So maybe maybe we can count down the top ten uh the top ten confessions on the show because I'm sure there will be more. <laughs> I'm I'm sure with a hundred thousand dollars out there, I'm sure a lot of people are gonna be confessing. Oh yeah. They also killed so. Kennedy and Nowhere, what's his name? John Hoff or Jimmy Hoff is buried and all that good stuff. Jimmy Hoff, yeah. All right. So, uh, our next update is on Jeffrey McDonald. He has filed his writ with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the government has waived response or opposition to his writ. Um, and so. The writ is set for conference where the nine justices will meet and discuss whether or not to uh, accept it and review the case on the merits. And that is set for October 1st, 2019. Okay. So – Real quick question, though. Uh, the government waives opposition. Does that mean that the government's like, screw it, we'll just – we didn't have enough time to look at it, so we'll just wait till the no, meeting? No, I think it's more – I think it's more that that uh, the government is standing on Judge Fox's uh, incredibly detailed analysis of the evidence presented by McDonald. And discussion of why that evidence is not sufficient to exculpate him, um, and the for, uh, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals opinion affirming Judge Fox's order, which also details the evidence against McDonald at trial as well as the evidence that he's put forth, uh, which is not sufficient. Secretly, and I know a lot of McDonald uh, people will probably not like me saying this, but I actually would like to see the U.S. Supreme Court take up McDonald's case and give him yet another judicial smackdown in the form of a scathing opinion that totally kills any any claims he might have to actual innocence. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a feeling they probably will not review 
because you know what he's offering is just none of the evidence he's offered overcomes the blood evidence the placement of the evidence in the house location of evidence in the house and the absolute absolute lack of evidence of intruders right and you know three unsourced hairs that aren't similar to one another so you got three unsourced hairs from three different people right that doesn't support intruders we know they're not Stokely and Mitchell because they had reference samples from Stokely and Mitchell um we know they're not from one of the assailants that McDonald described who is African-American, and these hairs are not from an African-American. They're from Caucasian. Um, right. So that would, you know, they're not – three hairs that are similar to each other that are are likely from the same source in three different places in the house, that would be – uh, that would be evidence of intruder. Right. At least one. Although, they could have been three hairs from the babysitter. They could have been three hairs from, uh, you know, the neighbor who lived mm-hmm. upstairs. But, you know, anyway, although, they're, well, they're not, I don't think they're female. I think they're male. So... But that that's uh, that's all on McDonald right now, and they probably will announce whether they're going to accept cert or deny it by next Tuesday. Right. And then in Rodney Reed's case, there uh, the excuse me the defendants, uh, the prosecutors, and clerk in Bastrop County and the prison officials have filed motions to dismiss the federal civil rights lawsuit filed by Reed's counsel seeking access to evidence for DNA testing. Um, mm-hmm. that, that was, those were recently filed. The judge who handled Larry Swearingen's civil rights court case is the same judge that's handling reads. Uh-huh. The decision will probably come within about within thirty days. So sometime Okay. Toward the last third week in October. Mm-hmm. Um, he may grant the motion altogether. Uh I, I can't recall what the grounds were in swearing, and he initially denied a motion to dismiss. They answered. They filed a motion for summary judgment, and he granted it. So um, we'll have to see. But it, it seems that they filed the motion to dismiss using the grounds from the summary judgment. Right. They used in swearing in. So um, we'll have to see. And the also there they had filed a challenge to the setting of Reed's execution date 
Uh, but that has now been non-suited, which means it's done and over. Huh, okay. So, because the execution date has been set for November 20th. Right. Um, and then in Adnan Syed, the uh, Friends of the Court has filed briefs on supporting Syed's position with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, mm-hmm. The state's opposition is due on October 21st, 2019. Then, the yeah. again, the judges will conference and decide whether to accept the writ and hear the case on the merits or to deny the writ. Okay. Makes sense. So, and that's all that's really going on. Um, Skinner's case, the Court of Criminal Appeals still hasn't ruled after a year or more on the um, the DNA results and the impact on Skinner's case. Right. So uh, we're waiting on that because that's okay. going to determine where the case goes from here. From here. Yeah. Okay. And um, I'll just say it, West Memphis 3 have not produced any exculpatory evidence or filed any motions to vacate their Alfred pleas after eight years. How many years? Yeah, let's just say. They, uh, eight I think years. At this point, I think Damien, uh, Jesse, and freaking uh, Damien, Jesse, and... Uh, Jason. Jason. I think they're I think Baldwin, Miss Kelly and Eccles are all kind of just happy to just whatever it at this point. I think I don't think there's yeah. gonna be anything I don't think there's ever gonna be anything filed or anything. I think they're kinda like whatever about it. 'Cause I mean, if you heard Damien back whenever uh Back whenever he came back for the uh, rally against the death penalty, hell, according to him, he was worried about, you know, just stepping foot in Arkansas, which he would obviously have to do if do again if they filed anything to begin with. So, mm-hmm. I think it's over. Yep. So anyway, um, all right. So we're on. We're going to look at the Chain of Rocks Bridge murders tonight. Um, that involved the state of Missouri versus Marlon Gray, Reginald Clemens, Antonio Richardson, and Daniel Winfrey. Uh, the Chain of Rocks Bridge is a bridge over the Mississippi River between Missouri and Illinois. Um, it was part of the highway six the uh, 
Highway 66, Route 66 system between Missouri and Illinois. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was closed in 1966, and uh, new bridges were built. It it had been built in the 1920s. Um, It was used as a pedestrian bridge for a while. Uh, I think it has since been demolished. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's no longer there. I posted some pictures on the show page so that um, people can see uh, what we're talking about. And one of the first things that I want to go into right now uh, before we even start is the jurisdictional issue. In treaties in 1793, the boundaries of states bordering the Mississippi River were determined to be in the center of the river along the riverbed. So between Tennessee and Arkansas, the state line is in the center of the river When you get when you cross that center line, you're at, you go from Tennessee to Arkansas or Arkansas to Tennessee. That's how jurisdiction is determined. It's the same way uh, up in Missouri between Missouri and Illinois. The center line of the river, and actually as the river shifts and and changes course, sometimes that center line that was there. It moves that one state gets more territory than the other one did. Right. Um, right. I think it's the same way in New Orleans, even though we're all within one state. uh, The the parish line between Orleans and St. Bernard or Orleans and Jefferson would be at the center of the river. So that's kind of like a county line. That's what you're getting. Yeah. Yeah. It's the parish line because we're parishes, not counties. But, I mean, it's the same state borders. And because I watched some documentaries that, you know, the, the, the implication was made that Missouri wanted to try these kids because they wanted to sentence them all to death because Illinois didn't have the death penalty. Well, it did in 1991. And so they would have been just as screwed being tried in Illinois as they would have been being tried in in St. Louis in in Missouri. Um, mm-hmm. So, and there was also set it set the record straight. Antonio Richardson he took police went with police. There was a videotape, and he showed police where things happened where they grabbed the victims, where the rapes occurred, where the manhole was, where the platform was, where the girls were pushed into the river. So all of that, if it was on the on the Missouri side of the center of the bridge, then the crimes occurred in Missouri. Right. Um, so just just to you know to clarify that a little bit, um, and it appears from from the descriptions that I've read in the various cases, the crimes occurred on the Missouri side of the bridge. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because they occurred at a bend in the center of the bridge or, or just beyond a bend in the center of the bridge on the Missouri side of the river. Right. So, all right. So that's, that's clear. And we may, we may go back to it a little bit later. So April 4th and 5th of 1991, uh, Thomas Cummings and his sisters and parents were visiting their grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles in, excuse me, St. Louis, Missouri. They were from Maryland. Uh, Thomas's uh, father was a career military officer, and I believe he was stationed with the Department of Defense or the Pentagon. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they were visiting. Uh, they were staying at the grandparents' house on the night of April 4th. They had dinner at the grandparents' house with Julie, Robin, and their sister, Jamie. Uh, the four cousins, uh, or the six cousins, was five girls and one boy. Uh, Jamie and Thomas's siblings' sisters were a little younger but Thomas, Julie, and Robin were all about the same age. Julie was 20, right. Robin was 19, Thomas was 19. Julie and Robin were very artistic. They were very socially conscious. Uh, they, you know, they wanted to make the world a better place. Uh, Robin at one point had her mom, who was divorced and struggling to make ends meet, had her mom help her buy food for a food pantry or a food drive. Wow. You know, most most kids, when your school has a food drive, you go in the cabinets, you take all the crap you don't like, the crap that's been there for a long time that you don't want to eat, and you put it in a bag and you take it to the food drive. But Robin wanted to buy healthy food that would do the most good for the families receiving it. So she had her mom go to the grocery store and buy a lot of tuna because it's relatively inexpensive, but it's also high in protein and it's a a good food to eat. So that's the kind of girl Robin was. Julie was the same. Um, Julie and Robin were best friends, which at that age, I can't imagine because my sisters and I (laughs) were not. Uh, They were both going to school at, I believe, the University of Missouri. Uh, Julie had finished a couple of semesters, and Robin, I think, was just finishing up her first semester. I could be wrong on that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, so Julie and Robin had graffitied a poem on the Chain of Rocks Bridge that they wanted Thomas to read. Thomas and Julie were very close. They'd spent time in Florida together. They'd spent a lot of time together while he was in St. Louis. Um, they really wanted him to see this poem, so they took him on 
the night of April 4th, around 1130 at night, to the Chain of Rocks Bridge. The bridge was a hangout for kids since it had been close to traffic. And uh, they got to the bridge. They were walking toward the Illinois side. They came across uh, four young men, three African-American and one Caucasian, uh, Marlon Gray, Reginald Clemens, Antonio Richardson, and Daniel Winfrey. They have a brief chat with the guys, nothing you know, nothing re- ringing any alarm bells or raising any re- red flags. Uh, Winfrey asks Robin or Julie for a cigarette. They give him a cigarette. The pairs go their separate ways. The Gray and his crew were heading back to Missouri, and Robin, Thomas, and Julie were heading back to the Illinois side or heading over right. to the Illinois side. Um, after they the four get a few feet away or a little bit away, Reginald Clemens says, hey, let's rob them. Antonio Richardson says, in addition to robbing them, why don't we go ahead and rape those girls? And Marlon Gray says, yeah, I want to hurt somebody. When, uh, yeah, when Gray or Clemens gives Daniel Winfrey, the 15-year-old little white dude, a condom, Daniel Winfrey's like, oh, no, I'm not doing that. And then Clemens and Gray push him up against the side of the bridge and tell him you're doing it. And so Winfrey agrees, although ultimately does not participate in the rapes. Uh, well, does not actually commit a rape. So right. the by that time, I guess Julie, Robin, and, and Thomas had seen the poem. They're coming back to the Missouri side to go back to the car and get Thomas back to their grandparents' house or go on to do something else that night. Um, they come upon Gray, Clemens, Richardson, and Winfrey. Clemens, uh, Gray grabs Thomas and tells him it's a robbery and then makes him lie face down on the ground. Thomas then hears uh, Julian Robin screaming. He hears someone threatening to kill them if they don't stop screaming. Uh, he hears what he takes to be uh, Julie being raped. And then after that, Robin being raped. Winfrey did help by holding Julie or Robin down while someone else raped her. But he didn't actually he didn't actually commit a rape. Um, then once they were finished raping the girls, Richardson took Julie down through a, a manhole onto a platform underneath the road deck of the bridge, or maybe it's. The roadway surface, and there's a deck, and then there's a platform adjacent or a pier under right. the bridge. But it's it's down underneath the decking of the road. 
he takes Julie down there. Clemens takes Robin down there. And then comes back and robs Thomas. Takes his watch, his wallet, his money. He Clemens finds a badge in Thomas's wallet and freaks because he thinks Thomas is a police officer. Thomas tells him, no, I'm a firefighter. He had just completed training, and I think he was a probationary firefighter. Okay. Um, and, you know, he had – Thomas had, had struggled in school. Uh, I think Thomas struggled with finding his place in the world but he'd finally found it as a firefighter. And I I would also point out that firefighting academies, intense, intense physical programs to get you in the best shape you've ever been in in your life. Oh, yes, absolutely. You may lose that physical conditioning down the road, but when you initially come out of the academy – you can carry heavy hoses. You can run up flights of stairs. You can do all kinds of things that the average person couldn't even begin to, to contemplate doing. Right, um, right. So then, once he's he's robbed him, they've threatened Clem. They've threatened Thomas. They've said, if you talk to police, we know where you live. There's discussion of whether Thomas should live or die. He's brought down the manhole. Clemens and Richardson are down there. Gray and Winfrey have gone back toward the Missouri side. Gray believed that Richardson had taken Julie off the bridge to the river to drown her. So I suspect that Marlin was going to help. Um, Uh But uh, so... It's Richardson, Clemens, Julie, Robin, and Thomas underneath the roadway. They force Julie, Robin, and Thomas onto the pier for the abutment. Uh huh. There's no pictures of the underside of the bridge. Um, and then Richardson pushes Julie, pushes Robin. And then Clemens is told, I mean, Thomas is told, we push you or you jump or we shoot you. Your choice. So Thomas elects to jump. Right. I mean, he's got training. Yeah. And so he jumps. He gets in, he lands in the river. It's about 50 to 70 feet from the point, the top of the pier to the river. It's not the 90 feet that Clemens' advocates claim it was. It's not 100 feet like I'm sure in five years it will be represented to be. It's 50 to 70 feet. Um, Yes, the Mississippi River has strong currents. Uh, It has undertoes. It was April, so it was probably relatively cold. But I'm sure adrenaline can counteract a lot of that. Um, oh, yeah, I'm sure. Robin, they never, Thomas never saw Robin after she was pushed in. He did see Julie 
and at one point they were near each other and he was telling her to swim. Um, she may have tried to grab him when they were being pulled under and he pushed her toward the surface. And then mm-hmm. when he surfaced, he didn't see her anymore. Right. Um, because Julie and Robin fell, they both were likely injured. Uh-huh. Uh, because when they were pushed, they would have had just a couple seconds to try and reorient their bodies. Right, right. And, you know, what what hurts you in a fall from that height, whether it's on concrete or water, if you fall on your back, you have your ribs in the back and, and you puncture a rib, uh, break a rib, puncture a lung, or those kind of, you know, impact injuries occur. Uh, but Thomas, because he jumped, he could have gone in feet first with his hands to his sides and, because, you know, cut into the water pretty pretty efficiently. Right, right. I'm sure he could, you know, dive in a way that would be less impact. Well, not even dive. I don't think that you would want to dive. Uh-huh. Head first, even with your hands overhead, not from that height. But if you go feet first, with your with your arms at your sides, you're probably with your toes pointed so that your your toes enter the water first, and then your body just mm-hmm. follows. I think you're going to minimize the impact. Right. Um, and you know, and I don't think Thomas Thomas probably could not tell you what he did or how he did it. Mm-hmm. But thank God he did. Right. True. Because he was able to swim. And this is another thing that to me suggests that they were closer to the Missouri shore or the Missouri side because he was able to swim to the Missouri shore Mm -hmm. and get out of the river. Right. Um, He came out of the river Sometime, we don't uh, we don't know exactly how long, it was around 2 o'clock in the morning that a truck driver, he walked out on the road in front of the truck. The truck driver testified he was wet, he was cold, and he was crying. Mm-hmm. The truck driver left him to go call police because it's 1991. Cell phones are not in everybody's pockets. Okay. When the police came, some of the initial officers who responded to the river and the bridge also stated that Thomas was wet. He had silt on his clothing. He was shivering. There's film footage, video footage of him in an ambulance with a blanket around his shoulders being checked out by paramedics. Uh, He did not have any... Uh, He did not seem to have any injuries, but again, he had the chance when when he took the option of jumping, he had the chance to do it in a way that was going to minimize the impact. Right. Um, So he was taken to the police station and interviewed, and it was several hours 
before apparently the detectives investigating the case, um, based on his initial statements, inter- came to interview him. By the time they saw him, he had probably run his hands, fingers through his hair. It had dried. Uh, his clothing had dried. The silt or mud or whatever was on them had probably dried, and maybe obsessively he cleaned himself off. I don't know that he was even wearing the same clothes. Um, I've never been able to determine because it's weird. There's there's some officers that say the clothes had silt, they were wet, his hair was wet, unkempt, you know, it was a mess. And then there are other officers that say he looked like he never went in the water at all. So Thomas told his story and because of information from the Harbor Patrol and the Coast Guard as to the current temperature and other factors in the river, detectives did not believe that Thomas could have jumped into the river and survived. Right. Um, again, I, I think that they they were not thinking it through. Uh-huh. He wasn't pushed. He never said he was pushed. Right. He always said, I I was given the option to be shot or to jump or be pushed, and I chose to jump. Right. Um, apparently, during his interviews, the police decided that he was making these four guys up that he really is the one who had something to do with Julian Julian Robin being killed or probably being killed. And so police wanted him to confess, to tell the truth about what he'd done. There was some badgering. There was some physical coercion. There was some intimidation. And Thomas eventually, a lot like Chris Morgan, said, okay, you want to hear it? Okay, I'll lie. I did it. But then he immediately recanted. Uh, Police also misrepresented... uh, he was given a polygraph test, which he never should have been given in the first place because of his emotional state at the time. Uh-huh. Considering what he'd just been through. Um, right. And so then they relied on that to say he was lying. Um, and, you know, I mean, if you really think he did it, let him go, let him go collect himself and then bring him in for questioning, more questioning and, polygraph him then after some time has gone by and he's not an emotional wreck. Um, So really Thomas Cummings has gotten a a horrible, horrible rap. Uh, Horrible injustice has been done to him because to this day he's still labeled by some as the real killer. Uh And they say he confessed. 
and they say he did it. However, Thomas Cummings, Cummins does not, uh, being the real killer, does not explain a lot of things. First of all, when Greg Clemens, Richardson, and Winfrey went up to that bridge, they had a flashlight that Antonio had stolen from a police officer. And while they were up there, prior to encountering Thomas, Robin, and and Julie, they lost the flashlight. In fact, one of the things they asked Thomas, Robin, and Carrie, I mean, Julie, the first time they encountered him was, have you guys seen a big black flashlight? And, of course, they hadn't, so that was the, you know, that was the end of that. Um, when the police were processing the bridge for evidence, one of the things that they found was a big black flashlight with Horn 1 written on it. Right. A news story went out, and a woman called in and said, that's my husband's flashlight. Antonio Richardson stole it a few days ago. So police go, and they pick up Antonio Richardson, Antonio doesn't really say too much, except he does name his cousin Reginald Clements. And he may have named Marlon Gray. In spite of the fact that when they left the bridge, after Clements probably announced that they had pushed them off the bridge, and after they had discussed how they weren't going to survive that, um, and how Marlon Gray told Richardson, he was really brave for pushing him off the bridge. Um, Gray told him, the cops are going to be looking into this. They're going to come around. When they come around, keep your mouth shut or I'm going to kill you. Well, Richardson did not pay heed. He he mentioned Clemens' name. He mentioned Gray's name. Clemens and Gray are picked up. Uh, They also eventually confessed and gave details that fully corroborated Thomas's initial statements. Okay. One of them also named Daniel Winfrey, who was also picked up and in the presence of his father confessed to being involved in the rapes, robbery, and murders of Julie and Robin Carey, an attempted murder of Thomas Cummins. Um, huh. All, and then when Richardson was Antonio Richardson was picked up again, uh, he also ended up confessing and going with police to the bridge for a videotaped walkthrough of what happened where. Uh-huh. Um, Clemens and Gray claimed that their confessions were coerced, were beaten out of them. So there was an internal affairs investigation of Clemens and Gray's police brutality claims, uh, which were not found to have any merit. Um, Listening to an, an oral argument, apparently every time Clemens and Gray were interviewed, the beatings got worse 
and the injuries got worse. And aside from a, a, a an injury to one cheek, neither of them had any injuries when they were booked that would be consistent with the type of beatings they claimed to have sustained. Right. So uh, the internal affairs investigation was uh, pretty much dropped. Now, after what happened with Thomas Cummings, to Cummins, I may be mispronouncing his name and I apologize. Uh, I think there was physical intimidation. I think there was threats of physical violence made. Right. And that is absolutely wrong. It's the worst thing these detectives could have done for any of these cases. Because it could have ended up where none of these guys could be charged or tried. If they had told consistent stories of what really happened and the brutality claims had been found to be true, they could have never even been tried. They would have gotten away with murder. Now, the other possibility, though, just to kind of put it out there, it's also possible that the person threatening and physically intimidating was the bad cop and that good cop came in behind and gained their trust and got them to bear their souls. Because for Daniel Winfrey, it was bearing his souls. Some of the accounts that I read of his confession, he was crying. And he wrote a letter to the Carey family shortly thereafter apologizing for his part. Um, And Reginald Clemens also told a family friend that he was just hanging out with the wrong crowd, shouldn't have been with those guys, raped a couple of girls, but had nothing to do with them getting killed. And right. this is a family friend that's known him since he was a baby. So um, they were all indicted for first-degree murder and rape and robbery. I think two counts of murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. Richardson and Winfrey, who were minors, were tried, were going to be tried as adults. And this was 1991, so even though they were minors, the state could seek and was seeking the death penalty against all four. Okay. Um, And I think this would be a good point to just take a quick break. certainly do that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back with more uh, Clear and Convincing right after this.
Viola Gym, Saturday, June 29th, it's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace of Muta, the original Misfit, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray Ray, Insane Shane, and current AWO champion at D-Mart. As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. for exaggeration that was their undoing because um, you know Marlon Gray claimed to have been struck in the chest with eight ten pound books log books Um, Reginald Clemens claimed to have been knocked unconscious several times Uh, and you know like I said during one of the oral arguments that I listened to, or maybe the only oral argument that there was in any of the cases, uh, the state attorney commented on the fact that every time they talked to him, he had more and more injuries, more and more done, uh, but never had any any injuries consistent with what he was saying. Right. There was one, you know, there was one wound on his cheek that was or not a wound a, a a bump or a bruise or some swelling on his right cheek that was observed 3 hours after he was questioned and we'll get into uh, that a little bit later but that's 3 hours out of, after he's questioned and I watched this guy's interviews and I can see this guy going to a holding cell after he's confessed and given his statements and saying, damn, I got to get my ass out of this trouble and hitting his head, you know, running his face against a wall. Right. Um, and, and, you know, if he's, he was aggressive, according to psychiatric records, this is Clemens, who knows? He may have gone and picked a fight with somebody just to get right. hit 
so he would be injured the next time anybody saw him. Right, right. So, I mean, you know, he's a manipulative weasel, basically. Uh-huh. Um, so the trials are coming, and Missouri's interesting because after your trial, you do your post-conviction immediately thereafter. And then in your direct appeal, the trial and the post-conviction are consolidated, which I've never seen in any state anywhere. (laughs) So even Texas. Um, So that's, that's why I've got them kind of grouped together. So Daniel Winfrey was 15 years old. He was a Caucasian. There had been claims that, well, the Caucasian kid was offered a deal because uh, he was Caucasian and these other guys were black or African-American. Um, but, you know, he was offered a deal. So was Antonio Richardson because they were both minors. Winfrey had some remorse like Jesse, Miss Kelly, mm-hmm. and he felt bad for what he had done. And what they had done, and so he took the deal. And entered a guilty plea. He was sentenced to thirty years. Oh, he he pled guilty to two counts of second degree murder. Uh, he was also found guilty of, or pl- pled guilty to the sexual assault and robbery sentence of 30 years um, and he agreed to testify against Gray, Clemens, and Richardson. Okay. So, um, and that was very shortly before Gray's trial, which was set to begin first. Marlon Gray went on trial and they had the testimony of Thomas Cummins, and Daniel Winfrey. Uh, Gray also got on the stand and testified. And basically, they weren't trying to say we weren't even on the bridge. They, he was trying to say, I left after the rapes. And I didn't know that anybody was going to kill anybody. I went to the car to smoke a joint. Right. The jury did not find that to be credible, and so Gray was convicted. Uh, he was convicted under an accomplice theory. He didn't have to physically push Julie or Robin from the bridge. But everything that had happened and his statements and his actions during the course of the crimes, he knew somebody was going right. to He knew they were going to die. Yeah, and really, you you'd have to argue he knew they had to die, or he was going to be facing life in prison or the death penalty after rape and robbery. So he was convicted. Right. Um, I don't think that they actually 
tried any of the sexual assaults or rapes. Mm-hmm. So he was just convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Right. Uh, right. Okay. His direct appeal and state post-conviction claims were all denied as not having any merit. Uh, the court basically found that he had sufficient deliberation based on his actions and statements that you know he was guilty of first-degree murder as an accomplice. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, when Clement says, let's rob him, and Richardson says, let's rape him, his response is not, okay, guys, I ain't doing this shit. I'm out of here. Because he was the oldest. He was about 24. Uh, he's not like, okay, guys, I'm not doing this. I'm out of here and leave and go get in his car and go. Right. He's, he's like, yeah, I want to hurt somebody. Yeah. And he's handing out the condoms. And then he also filed claims in federal habeas court, uh, pretty much the same claims that he pursued in his direct appeal and state post-conviction. And relief was denied both by the Eastern District of Missouri and also by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, His direct appeal and federal habeas, the U.S. Supreme Court did not agree to accept a writ. So his conviction and sentence became final uh, upon the completion of federal habeas. One of the issues that he did try and raise in federal habeas, Thomas Cummins filed a lawsuit against the St. Louis police, city of St. Louis, and that was settled for $150,000 shortly after the trials. I think it was like 1995. After the three trials had concluded. Right. Um, But again, I mean, you know, I believe, I believe there was some physical intimidation. Uh, They were probably popped in the head. Given the nature of the crime, as to both Thomas Cummins, Gray, and Clemens, and Richardson, they were probably popped in the head a few times. I mean, it's wrong. But I don't think any of it ever rose to the level of beatings that coerced false confessions. Right. And again, these weren't false confessions because they're corroborated by what was found at the scene and by Thomas Cummins. They they corroborated Thomas Cummins' initial statements. Uh Uh-huh. Um. And you have to remember, too, Daniel Winfrey and Thomas Cummins were direct eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, this isn't a circumstantial evidence case. Uh, and, and finally, Gray had Thomas Cummins swatch watch. When he was picked up. Right. Which corroborates Cummins' statements, corroborates Gray's statements, corroborates Winfrey's statements, and ties him to the murder and robberies. Or murder and robbery and rapes. Mm 
Um, Reginald Clemens went on trial next. And again, uh, Thomas Cummins and Daniel Winfrey were witnesses. Uh, The family friend, Williams, also testified. He was a St. Louis police officer. He had been related to Clemens by marriage and had known Clemens all of his life. Right. And he testified not only to not seeing any injuries when he visited Clemens about 12 hours after he was questioned by police, but also mm-hmm. he testified to Clemens' inculpatory statements to him. Clemens admitted committing the rapes, said it was because he was hanging around with the wrong people and he had too much to drink that night. Uh, but denied any involvement in the murders. Right. Um, And also, based on Winfrey and Cummins' testimony, Clemens was down under the bridge when Julie and Robin were pushed from the platform, and Clemens was involved in discussing whether Thomas would live or die. Right. So, again... His actions, his words, he's in it. He's all in. Right, absolutely. He's the one that came up with the robbery idea. He raped both Julie and Robin. Mm -hmm. He held Julie while, while Richardson raped her. And, uh, of course, with Gray, Clemens, and Richardson... The race card has been played, continues to be played. But Julie and Robin were of Puerto Rican and Lebanese descent, in addition to having the good Irish name of Carrie. Right, right. So they had a grandmother who was Puerto Rican. Their father, I believe, was half Lebanese. So they had a grandmother or a grandfather, probably a grandmother, who was Lebanese. Um, and they weren't mm-hmm. from, you know, an affluent Caucasian community. You know, their mom was working class, struggling to make ends meet. Yeah. So, um, and another so statement that Clemens that made... Yeah, when Richardson and Clemens met back up with Gray and Winfrey, leaving the bridge that night, Clemens said, we pushed him in the river. Not Antonio pushed him in the river. We pushed him in the river. Which to me suggests Antonio pushed one and Clemens pushed the other one. Right. So he was also convicted. Uh, He played a more active role than even Gray. He wants to claim, like Gray, that he's not guilty because he didn't actually push anybody. But once again, as an accomplice, you don't actually have to commit the crime. 
you basically just have to be there and to know it's going to happen and not do anything to stop it. To go along. So kind of like the uh, kind of like the law of parties. <clears throat> yes, in fact, I, accomplice liability and law of parties are very similar. Yeah. So, uh, and there are other, you know, there are other indicators that the girls were not, that the girls and Thomas were not meant to live. Um, they had taken Julian Robbins' clothing off to rape him, and they did not have the girls put that clothing back on. They threw it over the over the side of the bridge into the river. Which to me suggests they intended to kill him. I would agree. So so he was convicted of two counts of first degree murder. Shortly before his trial, the rape charges and robbery charges had been dismissed. Um more probably for expediency than anything else. Um, Julie's body I, I didn't go into this earlier Julie's body had been found near Carothersville, Missouri which is south about three weeks after she was killed Robin's body has never been found so for rape they didn't have any corroboration in 1991 because by the uh-huh. time Julie's body was found any evidence that would have corroborated the rape charge or proven the rape charge was gone. Um, and with without Robin's body, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't prove that she too had been raped. Um, so he was sentenced to death, and his direct appeal, post conviction, uh, were or his his trial and and post-conviction were addressed together on direct appeal. He also was not successful. He raised some issues related to exclusion of jurors. And uh, in federal habeas, that that claim was successful. The federal judge and the Eastern District of Missouri did grant him, vacate his death sentence and grant him a new sentencing. But that decision was overturned by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal, and the Eighth Circuit reinstated the death sentence. Okay. And then finally, we have Antonio Richardson. He was the last to go to trial. Again, Cummins and Winfrey testified. Uh, In addition to his confession, they had the videotape of him showing police where everything happened. And so uh, that was – he didn't testify. Clemens didn't testify. Um, He was also convicted of two counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to death, although the jury could not reach a unanimous decision. And so the judge ended up imposing a death sentence. Okay. Initially, in his direct appeal, 
uh, there was no problem with that because that was Missouri law worked that way. If the jurors were, uh-huh. a, were unable to reach a, a consensus or a unanimous decision, a judge could sentence um, and could sentence to death. And it also was not a problem in his initial federal habeas uh, because, again, the state of the law at the time did not address a judge sentencing where a jury is unable to do so. Um, Right. When the – probably in about 2003, um, the – Supreme Court decided against mental uh, execution of mental re- mentally impaired people, uh, whether it's right. retarded or, or mental uh, illness. Um, and more likely than not, at that point, Richardson filed a habeas claim with the Missouri State Supreme Court. And there also may have been a decision as to where the jury has got to be the sentencer in a death penalty case. Uh, right, right. And that may have also – I cannot find the decision commuting the sentence or any of the documents related to commuting the sentence. Um, so I can only go by what – the articles say and my understanding of Supreme Court precedent and his sentence was commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole because of either mentally ill he had an execution date in 2001 which was not carried out obviously and in 2003 his sentence was commuted in October of 2005, Marlon Gray was executed. Uh, he uh-huh. filed a last-minute appeal raising, again, Thomas Cummins' uh, brutality settlement and was unsuccessful in that. And he was executed in October of 2005. Clemens was scheduled to be executed in 2009, but he received a stay, and his attorneys filed a writ of habeas corpus with the Missouri Supreme Court, which appointed a special master and ordered that his case be reexamined. Right. Based on the brutality claims and based on allegations of uh, Brady violations. Essentially, there was a parole probation uh, person who interviewed Clemens after he was booked. That's part of the, the paperwork is part of the bond bail in the jail court system right. in St. Louis. During that interview, the the gentleman observed the bruise or bump on 
the right side of Clemens's face, asked him about it. He declined to respond. And then apparently one of his supervisors and the prosecutor had an issue with that notation on the form. And at some point it was scratched out because in the uh-huh. internal affairs investigation, there was no mention of this bumper bruise being observed. Yeah. And from what I read in the, in the opinion, the, the internal affairs suggested that when he was seen by the bail people, no injury was observed. Um, there were some evidentiary hearings held. One of the things that the state presented, uh, apparently they had decided to go ahead and do DNA testing as part of their presentation of, of evidence to refute Clemens's claims because Clemens was also claiming actual innocence. And he may have also been even claiming that he wasn't even there. Right. So uh, they they tested a used condom found on the bridge. They tested stains from Marlon Gray's pants and underwear. And what they found was uh, mixed DNA profiles from males and females. They did not have reference DNA samples from either Julie or Robin, but they were able to, with DNA from their father and mother, were able to determine that the female DNA that they found was 99.999999% a daughter of Julie and Robin's parents. Right. The male DNA on the condom belonged to Marlon Gray, and the female DNA was a daughter of the Carries. On the underwear, I believe there was uh, Marlon Gray's DNA, female DNA from a daughter of the Carries, and DNA that did not exclude Reginald Clements. Okay. And possibly Antonio Richardson. And then on the pants, there was DNA from a daughter of the Carries, as well as DNA that did not exclude Gray or Clements, and possibly Richardson. Okay. So long and the short of it is they find DNA evidence that corroborates the rapes. Right. Uh, and I would love to hear Reginald Clemens try and explain his DNA or DNA that does not exclude him in Marlon Gray's underwear. Uh-huh. Or on Marlon Gray's pants. Um, so then Clemens testified, and while on direct examination, he answered all the questions. He detailed his uh, abuse by the police that led to his confession. 
when the prosecutor got out to cross-examine him, he asserted his Fifth Amendment privilege against incrimination, self-incrimination. Uh-huh. So um, truth goes out the window. Huh. If you're actually uh-huh. innocent, you didn't do anything wrong, why can't you be cross-examined by the prosecutor? True. Um, so, I mean, he could truthfully say he didn't kill Robin and Julie because in his mind, if I didn't push him, I didn't kill him. But when she said, did you rape Robin Carey? I declined to answer that question on the grounds that it may incriminate, my answer may incriminate me. Huh. And even when the, the, the special master judge even told him, Mr. Clemens, this is not the time to be asserting your Fifth Amendment right. If you continue to do that, I can draw a negative inference. Right. Uh, but Clemens, you know, he, he uh, and, and his advocates say it was so unfair, you know, that the prosecutor got to question him at all. You know, this is about his abuse and and the state hiding evidence and the prosecutor of his original case, you know, being so mean and evil and calling him Charles Manson when he's a nice, sweet, you know, boy. And, um, you know, it's the way court works. All right. It, you know, it's funny. I see that in, in a lot of cases. Advocates for these convicted people believe that a case goes into court and only the good side is supposed to be presented. Right. And when the state gets their chance to present the bad stuff, it's unfair and abusive and wrong. True, right. And then they also act as though the bad stuff doesn't exist, or they explain it away. Well, of course. So uh, the special master, while he did not find that Clemens was actually innocent, he did find that suppression of the report and observation of the bruise could have had an effect on the outcome of Clemens's trial, leading him to question it. And so he uh, vacated Clemens's sentence and conviction. That was reviewed by the Missouri Supreme Court, and the Missouri Supreme Court agreed and vacated the conviction and sentence in 2015. Uh, on a side note, I don't think that that report or that testimony of the officer would have helped Clemens at all, either at trial or on the motion to suppress, because initially the officer testified that he thought the injury was from a spider bite. Uh-huh. Right. And having lived in Arkansas, Frickin' spiders are all over the damn place. 
True, true. I mean, they get up in your house, and you're minding your own business, and all of a sudden there's a big-ass spider crawling across your bed. And then you got to go, you know, exterminate it because you don't want it crawling across your bed while you're sleeping. <laughs> um, yeah. So he initially, and then he, and then he says after he talked to his supervisor, who was a former St. Louis cop, he decided that he believed that Clemens had been abused during questioning. You know, this was a a single swelling bruise on a cheek. Uh-huh. This was not two black eyes, raccoon eyes. This was not evidence of a bloody nose. This was not dilated pupils or unequal pupils caused by head injury. Um, this was not an an arm that was dangling because the shoulder's dislocated. Um, the, this is not a single bruise or bump on a face is not consistent with the actions that Clemens described right. occurring during his questioning. Like I said, I do believe he was probably smacked in the head. Right. I mean, let's be honest. And Sometimes he was, can, you know, his, his personal space was probably invaded. And right. he was probably threatened to that he was going to be beaten within an inch of his life. Yeah. But as Why? to whether any of that actually happened is doubtful. And again, right. more because Reginald Clemens could not keep his story about what happened straight and that undermined his credibility with the internal affairs investigators. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, I don't think that that testimony or that report would have had any effect because they had observations from Clemens's family. They had the arraignment judge sending Clemens to the hospital to be looked at and having those medical records and that doctor testifying. But none of that and, and the week's report, none of that proves that the, the injury was inflicted by police. Right. You know, and Clemens refusal to tell weeks when Weeks said, what happened to your face? His refusal to answer the question, you know, it, he didn't say cops hit me. If if he had answered the question and said the cops hit me, and that had been on the report and that had been redacted or scratched out, I I would agree. It could have had a it could have had a huge impact. Because it would be three hours after his questioning, him telling somebody cops hit me. But that's not what happened. He did not tell Weeks that the cops hit him. He didn't. He declined to answer the question. Right. So, 
Uh, Clemens was scheduled for retrial. And in December of 2017, in light of the DNA evidence, um, he elected to plead guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. He was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. However, in 1991, Missouri did not have mandatory life. In Missouri, life was minimum 15. Okay. So, um, Clemens, at the time he was resentenced, at the time he pled and was sentenced, he was already serving a 15-year sentence for injuring a correctional officer in 2007. Um, and I guess he's going to complete whatever minimum he has to serve on that one relatively soon if he hasn't already done so. Um and so he only has to serve 15 on the life sentence, and he's already served 25, 28 now. Um, so he right. may be eligible for release in 2020. However, I question that because we've talked about this before on consecutive sentences. When you finish the minimum on the first sentence, you start the minimum on the second sentence. Right, right. And then you start the minimum on the third. <clears throat> so I don't think that he's actually going to be eligible for release. Interestingly enough, he doesn't show up on the Missouri Department of Corrections website. Huh. I don't know whether that's because he's been transferred. It's Everything I found said he's at Potosi. Right. But I looked on the Missouri, and Daniel Winfrey was released on parole in 2007, but he apparently reoffended and went back to prison, and he uh-huh. will finish his 30-year stint. He's currently incarcerated now. Uh, Richardson is also incarcerated because he had life without parole. However, because he was a juvenile... I would not be surprised within the next couple of years to see him uh, demand a new sentencing because he was sentenced to life without parole and he was a juvenile. Right. Um, But also the other reason I don't think Clemens is going to actually be released is because he is already saying he took the deal because he didn't want to put his family and the Carey family through another trial. You put him through 25 years of accusing Thomas of being the real killer, of saying Thomas confessed to the murders, of saying you're actually innocent, of saying you didn't do any of these things and you're just being persecuted because you're African-American. But now... You don't want to put the carries through another trial. Um, The other thing that kind of diminishes 
his credibility and the credibility of the spin that's being put on this guilty plea is the fact that during the guilty plea, he apologized to Julian Robbins' mother. Uh-huh. So, but if he sticks to the spin and he sticks to the thing of, you know, everything was so unfair, there was a complaint about the DNA evidence, they're getting ready for the retrial, the uh, the defense wants to, you know, do independent testing of this DNA evidence, and uh, they, you know, they don't have time to do that before the trial, well, you found out about the DNA evidence in 2012 at the hearings. Right. There was evidence at the hearings. So, you know, don't tell me That's you had to wait for the retrial. Right. Um, even even while the, the special master and the Missouri Supreme Court were still trying to decide the outcome. You could have sought testing of that DNA evidence. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, if he if he goes before the parole board and does not, you know, starts claiming he only took the deal, uh, even though he's innocent, he didn't kill anybody, he didn't rape anybody, he didn't do any of these things. The late Nels Moss, the prosecutor in the case, framed him and his friends. Then he ain't gonna see parole. Right. So I will be keeping an eye on Reginald Clemens' case and see if he does uh become eligible for release. If I find where he is, I'm I'm I speculate that he injured a guard and so now he's serving his time in some other state. But I don't know what state that is yet. Right. So, um, but uh, Richardson's still in prison, and Winfrey is back in prison. Huh. So, um, so that is that's the Chain of Rocks murder case, Chain of Rocks Bridge murder case. Okay. Okay, yeah. I mean, and it's definitely had its, you know, leaps and bounds. But like you said, at the end of the day, we were talking about potential release. I don't, I, I completely agree with you. I don't see it happening. I see maybe him getting 15 years for each wife, maybe, if he does the right thing. But that's about the best I can see working out for him. Well, you know, like I said, my understanding of consecutive sentences, he's got to do 15 on each sentence. And then once he does the 15 on the final life sentence, then he will be eligible. Yeah, he's, he's in his late 40s now, I believe. Oh yeah, he'll be an old ass man, or dead. So, but um, yeah, I, I I don't see I don't know that he really will be eligible. 
that's why I'm I'm disappointed I couldn't find him on Missouri's DOC because right. that would have told me if he had a if he had a potential release date. Right, right. So, um, uh, and it's weird when you search Clemens with two M's because I've been misspelling it that way. Um, you you find a guy by the name of Reginald Miller. But it doesn't look like him. Mm-hmm. And the charges are different. So, um, okay. but uh, again, you know, I may have come across his old prison number where he was before his sentence was vacated. Um, right. So I will keep looking and, and see if I can find a a current number. And see if I can find him. Right. And if I do, I will update. Um, I did send a a message, or I tweeted the prosecutor who handled the retrial and okay. the plea, uh, but she didn't respond. And I would imagine that um, she probably thought that I was inviting her on the show to be a cheerleader for Reginald Clemens. Probably. And I hope that she saw my tweet tonight, even though I didn't I didn't tag her in it, but I hope she saw right. my cheat tweet for Reginald Clemens because I did ta- I did hashtag his name um and uh-huh. that she sees it and listens and hears that I am the first furthest thing you can get from a cheerleader. <laughs> Reginald Clemens. And I even disagree with the special master and the Missouri Supreme Court. Right. Uh, I don't think his sentence and conviction should have been reversed because I don't think that absent Clemens saying the police beat me, that the testimony from Weeks or his report would have been all that helpful. Because the whole mm-hmm. spider bite, I thought it was spider bite. And then I talked to somebody, and then I decided it was police brutality. Huh. You know, right. he, he would have folded on the witness stand so fast. Um, and we don't know who scratched out the reference to the bumper bruise right. on the report. They're saying because the supervisor and the prosecutor talked to Weeks, and Weeks got the impression that they both wanted him to change his story. Um, but, you know, that's inferring – that's Weeks's inference, but I don't know that they even asked the supervisor to testify. Why would you call him in to ask him about this? More likely than not, the internal affairs investigation going on. Um, and the prosecutor, why did you talk to him? I don't know that that question was ever asked. Right. Because he may have had a, have had a legitimate reason. Um, and the biggest thing for me is Weeks reaches out and contacts Clemens' counsel in 2012. Why the hell didn't he call in 1992 or 1993 
prior to Clemens's trial. The police brutality right. claims were all over the news. Why would he not call and say, hey, look, I saw him in the jail. I did an intake. I said he had a bumper bruise, and it got scratched off my report. Very good point. You know, why would he wait 21 years? Valid. Valid question. You know, that that alone leads me to think that over the years, his what he believes and what he thinks have kind of taken the place of what actually happened. Right. And so, you know, and, and has become, have become embellished the way the attorney that showed up in the West Memphis three case, about Ken Arnold, the juror. I'm sure his account was embellished over the years because he told people a story, and finally he told such an outrageous story that somebody pushed him into having to come forward. And I've always said, you're an attorney. You know it's improper. You know it's not supposed to be happening. Why wouldn't you call the judge? Good point. You wouldn't have even gotten Ken Arnold in trouble. All you would have to say is, Ken Arnold, he's talking to me about the case outside of court. Right. And then Judge Burnett would have talked to Ken Arnold and said, thank you, Mr. Arnold. You're dismissed. And there would have been a damn thing Ken Arnold could have done. Right, true. You know, so, um, which leads me to believe that Ken Arnold, whatever Ken Arnold talked to him about, uh, was not that significant to him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or perhaps he watched Paradise Lost, and it took him a few years to come up with a good story. <laughs> Um, you know, kind of like Joseph Evans, who now wants his hundred thousand dollars, Kathleen, you bitch. <clears throat> so, all right, okay. I think we're done. I, you know, the the I gotta say though, I I want to add this. We we aren't we're not done. Um, Julian, Robin, Carey were. Civic-minded, compassionate, artistic young women who deserved to grow old and make their mark on the world. And the world would have been a better place had they remained in it. Absolutely. And uh, what what was taken on April 5th 1991 was that and you know I think Thomas Cummins also you know he he was a victim by the grace of God he survived to tell the story 
I, you know, uh-huh. accusing him of this, accusing him of killing these girls who were his cousins, his blood, he loved them, is just the lowest of the low. Based on exaggerated distances between the deck and the river, exaggerated claims about surviving. I mean, you know, people survive things that you look and you think, how the hell did that happen? Oh, absolutely. I mean, working for personal injury attorneys, I've seen vehicles that are crushed beyond recognition where the injuries are relatively minor, where you think nobody could walk away from that. Nobody could live. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I just, I, I think it's that's the almost the worst part, and he's got to live with the survivor's guilt, right? And it's taken a toll on him over the years. Um, I do want to mention um, Janine Cummins, Thomas's one of Thomas's younger sisters, has written a book called A Rip in Heaven, and it uh-huh. talks about the case. She's also written some articles about the case. Uh, one of which appeared in the New York Times, I believe, or an editorial article. Um, Rip in Heaven, it's available on Kindle. It's a great, it is a great book. I haven't finished it yet, but I've been reading it. And once I finish it, I may try to track Janine down and see if she would like to come on the show. Okay. And we can talk to her because she was... Uh, she was a contemporary of the younger sister, the youngest sister, Jamie. I kind of have an affinity too with Julie, Robin, and Jamie because I'm the oldest of three sisters. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I I couldn't imagine losing two of my sisters. Right. So, oh, I um, absolutely not. <clears throat> So, uh, but I might, you know, reach out to her once I finish the book. I've been reading it, but unfortunately not fast enough. Right, right. So, all right. Well, now we'll put a bow on it that we've we've ended it talking about the people who really matter. Absolutely. I agree with that. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us on Tuesday, October 1st, 2019 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 32, State of Nebraska versus Shanna Elizabeth Goliar. Carrie Lee Farver began dating Dave, the former boyfriend of Goyar, in 2012. On November 13, 2012, Carrie disappeared from Dave's house in Omaha, Nebraska. A series of text messages thought to be from Carrie informed her employer that she was quitting her job, told her mother she was leaving town to take a new job, and ended her brief relationship with Dave. Over the next four years, Goliar claimed to be a victim of relentless stalking and harassment by Carrie, 
including a fire set at Goyar's home and a shooting in an isolated park. Eventually, the electronic trail Goyar left in her efforts to appear to be a victim and win Dave back resulted in her arrest, conviction for first-degree murder, and life sentence. We'll talk about the bizarre case that included fake social media profiles and texts sent by a dead woman, as well as the legal gamble that backfired and Goyar's unsuccessful direct appeal. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.